us as human rights lawyers, we see <laughs> we see what's happening today as being an issue that is mostly concerned about human rights. So the state human rights to ensure our right to life, our right to health, and also some limitation restrictions to our human rights to uh, uh, freedom of movement, uh, privacy, and other types of rights uh, that might be involved. So I'm really pleased that uh, Professor Charlie accepted to uh, do our first webinar on this issue. Uh, for those of you who do not know who's Professor Chali, uh, so Bashak uh, Chali is Professor of International Law at the RT School and Director of the School Center for Fundamental Rights. She's an expert in international law institution, international human rights law and policy. She has authored publications on theories of international law, the relationship between international law and domestic law, standards of review in international law, interpretation of human rights law, and many other issues concerning human rights law. So uh, she, uh, a week ago, uh, participated in uh, another webinar organized by the Strasbourg Observers on uh, human rights and the fight of the pandemic, which was tremendously interesting. Most of the speakers were from the UK and were describing the situation as it was in the UK. And fortunately, they also had uh, Professor Chali as part of the uh, webinar, offering a more comparative perspective. For those of you who have missed uh, this, uh, this uh, webinar, you can find it on uh, YouTube, uh, and I uh, strongly recommend you. Now, I'm very happy that Professor Chali will provide us an even larger picture of uh, what uh, is involved by the pandemic and its uh, interact interrelationship with human rights law. Thank you, Professor Chali. You have uh, 15 minutes, 20, and then after that, we will go to the audience for more questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Skander, very much for, um, for the introduction, and thanks, everyone, for joining us uh, for this online webinar. It's a very strange thing to look at this camera uh, and not being able to see anyone, not really knowing who's in the room, uh, I have to say, but uh, I think we're all getting used to it. We're getting used to lots of things um, in this very unusual situation. Uh, but there are lots of things that maybe we shouldn't get used to uh, as well. So. It's something that I'd like to focus on uh, a little bit. So the tradition of a colloquium is uh, usually to present work in progress. Uh, we usually have um, our students, PhD students, visitors to, to present as works, uh, draft papers. Um, so I'd like you to take this also in that spirit. This is very much a, of a work in progress, uh, thinking about fundamental rights uh, in isolation. I have a few slides uh, that I think we might uh, uh, try to share. Uh, Mihail is going to uh, put uh, a few of those slides, uh, just a couple of visualizations so that you don't see this uh, sort of the, the, the large grid. Um, there won't be much writing on those slides, but I think she's uh, she will put them on uh, instantaneously. Are you able to put those slides? Um, apologies, they just disappeared, but um, they're on again. They'll be on in a minute. Okay, fantastic. So, what uh, I'd like to do in this, uh, you know, work in progress uh, thought on uh, fundamental rights and the COVID-19 pandemic is, 
is really three things uh, I'd like to do. So the, the first one is I want to talk a little bit about uh, why it is absolutely necessary to think about fundamental rights in this pandemic, that it is not just a, an optional way of thinking, but it's an absolutely crucial part in fighting, uh, in fighting the pandemic. Uh, this, the second thing I'd like to do is to, to kind of have a sense of whether uh, the policies that were taken in particular in the first uh, month of the pandemic, uh, whether, uh, whether they can be understood as uh, fundamental rights respecting and in what ways. Um, and then the third part, I really want to, to talk about uh, fundamental rights over time. Uh, so in, in Germany, we're, we're in this situation now about seven, seven weeks. For some of us, it's been seven or eight weeks of isolation. Uh, in some countries, they're in their fourth week. Uh, we don't really have a sense of how long this will be, in what form or shape this will continue. Uh, so what kind of effects this is going to have uh, over time on, on fundamental rights? So those are kind of the three things uh, that I want to talk about. So. On the first one, uh, and we can move on to the uh, the next uh, uh, image, uh, Mihail. Uh, why is it so important uh, to, to think about fundamental rights? Now, perhaps maybe I should say this. Uh, I'm really interested in countries where fundamental rights are taken seriously. So, you know, this is not a talk about sort of criticizing those um, countries that actually do not have uh, sort of entrenched fundamental rights protection. So I'm also not going to talk too much about uh, states using uh, the pandemic to abuse fundamental rights or to entrench authoritarian regimes. So there are lots of political issues around it. So I'm just imagining uh, a country where there, there's a constitutional uh, legal framework, uh, there are uh, institutions, there are courts, uh, there's a constitutional system, and they're in the middle of this pandemic. And what are the fundamental rights issues in that kind of a scenario? Uh, as you know that uh, in countries where fundamental rights are, are not taken seriously, obviously the, the pandemic makes things even worse, right? It exaggerates all the existing uh, problems. So uh, it's not something that I want to focus uh, too much uh, about. So the, the first thing is uh, why, why this is absolutely crucial. So why we should uh, listen to constitutional lawyers, uh, human rights lawyers, not just scientists, uh, and uh, public health specialists and not just economists and social policy experts in this in this field is because fundamental rights has this very important function <clears throat> of guiding decision making. Uh, it is a framework through which uh, public actors uh, are supposed to make uh, sort of legitimate decisions that are constrained uh, by by a constitutional framework, so it is it is not about sort of what happens after, but what are the the, the most appropriate or correct decisions that are that are to be made, and the framework says well you have to take into account uh, all the rights that individuals have in a in a functioning. Uh, liberal uh, democratic state and in normal times as well as in the times of pandemic most rights they have to be balanced against each other because they may be in competition uh, with one another so think about the example of uh, freedom of expression and right to privacy are usually in this sort of a very competitive relationship even in normal times you may want to criticize a politician's child uh, and there's always a question about whether you can talk about someone's child. Is that the child's privacy or is it about your freedom of expression to criticize the politician? These are very standard uh, questions 
uh, where we, we think about uh, rights competitions. So what happens in, the, in, a, in an epidemic is that we have fundamental rights competitions, but some of them are unusual ones. So we have new ones. So this image here uh, tells you about this one unusual competition of uh, sort of, you know, the question is whether this is the right thing or not, because he's up in uh, the top of the mountain, the right of your freedom of movement versus the, uh, the, the state's duty to protect the right to health or the right to life. It has become into an unusual competition that we were never used to saying this type of a competition that you by going out, which is your freedom of movement, might actually uh, affect someone else's uh, life. And, and a key question is, of course, uh, you know, in these competitions, which right should be restricted in what way, in what form, what is legitimate and what is not legitimate. So fundamental rights helps authorities to make these decisions and to review those uh, decisions. So it's absolutely necessary to think about rights in the middle of a pandemic. Now, the second reason uh, why this is really crucial uh, is it has to do with uh, the notion of accountability. So fundamental rights allow us to hold public authorities into account after events have taken place or after restrictions have taken place. So you could call this the ex post function of fundamental rights. So not about how you make the decision, but whatever the decision is made, uh, there's going to be grievances. There's going to be certain groups in a society where they will say that they were, their rights were not adequately protected in the pandemic. And uh, there's going to be a lot of court cases. There's going to be some very difficult questions that will have to be resolved uh, by courts. So this is the framework through which we will say whether the state has acted properly to save lives, whether they have restricted certain rights in the in the proportionate way. Uh, and this is our language of accountability. And of course, accountability is going to be about the past. Uh, so it will be about what happened, uh, you know, from, from a year to, to a few years later, people will actually uh, talk about these things. Um, so if you could look at the uh, second image, Mihail, the, the one that uh, comes comes after this, uh, one of the one of the key issues about uh, this accountability aspect is going to be about a very important function of fundamental rights, which is not about balancing rights, because the rights are in competition and by restricting movements, for example, or assembly, you're trying to actually protect another light which is life or health in the middle of the pandemic. But another function uh, of, uh, of the fundamental rights decision-making is to constantly indicate to the to state authorities, authorities that they have positive obligations. Uh, so it's not that they always have to balance one right against the other, but they have to protect uh, rights through action. Uh, and a big debate uh, some of you may have followed in France is a group of doctors and nurses uh, are, are saying that uh, the French state has not acted uh, on time or hasn't acted in an adequate way to, to save lives. So this is the, the duty to protect lives. And this is going to be also, uh, I think, a very debated issue in many places, whether uh, the authorities have acted in a timely way, in a responsible way, in, a, in the most adequate way to actually, uh, to actually save lives in the pandemic. Uh, and there are lots of, uh, obviously, questions about uh, the duty to protect in relation to saving the lives of doctors and nurses. This is going to be a big issue, whether the states have acted to save those lives adequately. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, positive obligations 
sort of uh, questions that will be asked about those in detention, in migrant detention, in prisoners, in elderly homes or in care homes, whether those people not have died had the states acted in a timely and appropriate fashion. These are going to be questions uh, that we will have to ask. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a core feature of, of, uh, of fundamental, uh, fundamental rights thinking as well. So if we go on to the, uh, the, the next uh, slide, uh, and I want to move on to uh, you know, what, whether the states have done uh, everything in the right way, what, what are the trends that we're seeing in places where we think that fundamental rights are taken seriously, right? So I'm not talking about uh, authoritarian regimes where we cannot really apply this framework uh, in, a, in a comfortable way. So a big question is that I think everyone had understood that, you know, there's a rights competition. Uh, I think no one is, everyone is very clear that certain rights are competing. Health and life are competing against lots of other rights. They're competing against assembly, as you see in this uh, photo. Uh, this is uh, a protest in Israel against corruption under COVID. Uh, but of course, right and health are also uh, competing against uh, potentially a lot more uh, with uh, with privacy, uh, with also social rights and economic rights, as well as uh, sort of cultural rights. I mean, if you think about uh, the cancellation of Oktoberfest, maybe we could call it uh, a competition of cultural rights as well. So a really interesting question here is, for example, in Germany, in a lot of places where people would like to protest on the streets, uh, these were not allowed uh, in, in various states in Germany, saying that, well, uh, you know, you can't have an assembly uh, because, uh, you know, this, this will create a public health risk uh, or, and, you know, there's a risk of this, uh, the, uh, the disease to be, to be spreading. And this is a really interesting area, question because, as you see in this photo, these individuals are protesting, but they have kept uh, some significant distance between themselves, but they're still protesting against the, the corruption, uh, what, uh, what they are seriously concerned about, corruption that's going on with the authorities in Israel. So some of these uh, questions about, oh, assemblies must always uh, end and you can't have any single assembly uh, is not a very straightforward uh, sort of a, of a situation. Of course, the rights have to be balanced, but of course, one of the things from we learn from fundamental rights reasoning is that you have to find a way that restricts the right in the least way. The least option to restrict the right has to be uh, selected uh, because this is what will uh, be required by some sort of understanding uh, of proportionality or restrictions. Uh, so what's been happening right now in German courts is that a lot of individuals are saying, what if we leave uh, five or 10 meters distance between us? Why can't we protest? Why, uh, and this is exactly a time where we have to be politically more active because we have a lot of concerns about, in particular, the economic and social consequences of the pandemic uh, in relation to disadvantaged populations and so on. So uh, even though we all understand that our freedom of movement, for example, has to be curtailed, and I think this is a necessary, probably a proportionate uh, measure, uh, even in, in places where the fundamental rights are taken seriously, I think the question is that it is going to be a very long uh, lasting debate about whether the right balance is struck between these competitions on a case by case basis. And as you see, there's a real risk if uh, you say that no assembly can ever take place because we have a pandemic, because this sort of a 
you know, losing a, one right completely against another right is exactly one of the things that uh, fundamental rights reasoning um, has to avoid. So there has to be quite a lot of case-by-case -case thinking. And, uh, and of course, case-by-case -case thinking uh, requires a lot more resources, a lot more organizational capacity, a lot of positive action by authorities than blanket bans on assemblies or blanket bans on uh, on going out. Um, so I think in a way the, uh, the the jury is going to be out about even with the most basic uh, balancing acts, uh, whether the fundamental rights respecting societies have really done it in the right way. Uh, these are the things that we will have to discuss, I think, on, a, on an ongoing basis, even though everyone understands that some of these restrictions are necessary. Uh, but of course, their proportionality has to be reviewed uh, on an ongoing basis. And if they're not, uh, there are some serious risks uh, that, you know, the trade-offs will be uh, sort of quite frozen over time. One very interesting thing uh, in this in this debate is uh, whether uh, states should derogate from fundamental rights. Uh, in some European states, uh, as well as in Central and South American states, uh, states have declared states of emergencies. And they're saying that they're going to suspend some rights up to two weeks, in some places up to four weeks, in some other places up to six weeks. So it depends on each country's uh, own legislation. So they're basically saying no assemblies are going to be taking. We're suspending, almost freezing your rights uh, for, for a certain amount of time. And what you see in countries like Germany or in France or in Italy is that they haven't done uh, this. So they haven't declared sort of a statewide, uh, you know, countrywide state of emergency, and they haven't frozen our rights, right? Our rights are not suspended, but they are being restricted. Uh, and, uh, and of course, if you don't restrict rights, this is probably, or if you are not free, you could say this is good news, uh, because, you know, states haven't derogated, uh, you know, our rights are still there, they're just a little bit restricted. But of course, uh, it is it is very unclear uh, in many occasions what this means, uh, you know, because the restrictions look like derogations if, if you're actually your rights are not being exercised properly. So this distinction between what is a rights restriction and what is a rights derogation is something that also I think we're going to be thinking through uh, for uh, for for some for some years uh, for some years to come. So what are the sort of the ongoing uh, uh, risks, uh, current and ongoing risks? If you if you go on to the the, the next um, image, uh, Mihal, uh, this is something uh, that uh, we we you know one of the one of the current and ongoing uh, risks that we will uh, you know one of the current risks that we will have to to think about is this notion of positive obligations, uh, and this language is I think incredibly important. Uh, for, for authorities and uh, the informed publics uh, to, 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 to talk about, because it's not about whether, uh, you know, what the authorities knew in January about the pandemic. It is about, you know, the risk assessment that they have to do over time uh, and whether they're taking all the steps that they could have possibly taken in order to uh, prevent the number of deaths uh, and this question of positive obligations. Uh, the positive obligations, obviously, I think one of the first areas that I see this, and this is something very important, is whether authorities are really 
protecting uh, those frontline workers? I think this is going to be, this is a very important question that we have to ask on an ongoing basis. And what I mean by frontline workers are not uh, only doctors and nurses and the health officials, but also those people who work in supermarkets uh, and uh, who are actually doing the essential delivery services. Um, and I think uh, the fundamental rights analysis will show us that not enough precaution maybe is taken in relation to, to protecting um, uh, those rights. And I think this is something that we have to constantly ask public authorities more and more uh, questions about. Uh, another sort of a, a vulnerable population question, if you look at the, the next image, which um, uh, as you see uh, in the images, I'm trying to not uh, you know, show you lots of photos and pictures, is also people who are in confined places or people who are in detention. Uh, the fundamental rights perspective really pushes us uh, to, to think about state's positive obligations uh, in relation to those who are not like us. I mean, if you, what I mean by like us is just uh, people who are not living in places of detention. Uh, a, a big sort of uh, uh, discussion in this regard is of course care homes, uh, but uh, a lot of questions have to do with uh, detention facilities, of migration detention facilities, and also also prisons and psychiatric hospitals and wards. So the, the fundamental rights analysis asks, pushes us to ask what kind of measures, what kind of protective measures uh, are taken to, uh, to pay attention to the lives of those individuals. These are the questions that we ask, not just about us not going into the park type of questions, but these questions become uh, much more uh, much more forceful uh, to ask. So what's going to happen? You know, let's let's look at the the, the next uh, next slide. So what are the what are the sort of the future uh, is, is going to is going to hold for us? There are two scenarios, right? The 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 first scenario is that we're going to be in this for for longer, or we're going to be out of it. We're going to be, uh, you know, the restrictions will be lifted for a little bit, and then they may come back again. So we may be okay for a little bit, and then there could be new restrictions imposed because the pandemic uh, might come back, or another pandemic might come back. So I think we also have to think about this as not just a COVID type of situation, uh, and uh, so the fundamental rights thinking will, will have to ensure a lot of future thinking. One of the biggest things that I see uh, with this either becoming longer and longer uh, or recurring, uh, sort of the pandemics and this sort of healthy situations recurring, is uh, the, the serious risks that uh, our protections on anti-discrimination uh, is going to have. Uh, what, when we, you can say, what do you mean? We're all in this together, you know, we're, right? This is the hashtag, we're all suffering. Um, you know, students are suffering, professors are suffering, you know, everybody is suffering, kids are uh, suffering. Now, this is true, but of course, we are not all the same and we are not living in the society in, you know, having the same opportunities and, and having, the, having the same resources. So imagine uh, sort of going through this in a, in a confined environment uh, with, with this size of a balcony and uh, maybe for Berlin, this is a standard versus going through this with, with a garden or with a bit of more space. Uh, uh, imagine what goes on in, in, the, in the households in relation to women uh, and domestic violence or violence against children uh, in those closed uh, households. So the restrictions are going to have disproportionate effects 
uh, on those individuals who already are uh, facing uh, discrimination because of their gender, uh, because of their um, socioeconomic uh, opportunities. Uh, and of course, uh, this type of, uh, you know, confinement policies uh, will have mid to long term uh, effects uh, on uh, sort of our, our efforts of combating discrimination. Uh, you know, women may may fare. I mean, if you, also you can extend this over time. Uh, there's already some research coming out about how, for example, this will impact career prospects uh, for for women or how this will have effects on, on the choices of those who are in risk groups and how this the, the rest of their, their lives will be affected. So a pandemic really kind of shows us how indirect discrimination looks like, right? So authorities are not trying to discriminate between men and women or between those who are in the risk groups or who are not in the risk groups, but indirectly some groups are going to be disproportionately affected even though the measures themselves look very neutral measures. And this is what in fundamental rights language we call indirect discrimination, that something seemingly looking neutral has disproportionate effects on you. Uh, so this is something uh, I think this is going to stay for us. And I think this is uh, this is one of the uh, one of the genuine uh, genuine risks. And of course, this discrimination is sometimes also going to be direct. Uh, think about the very difficult intersection between COVID pandemic and migration and think about the effects, the direct, not indirect, but direct effects this is going to have on the right to claim asylum and right to family reunification, for example, through migration. So, and these are also very much direct discriminatory effects uh, that the pandemic uh, is having and is likely to have um, in, the long, uh, in the long run. So, if you go to the uh, next one, uh, Mihal, uh, just uh, uh, the one, I think this is the one before my last slide. Uh, and of course, this has been on the news. Uh, I'm sure you have read a lot of coverage uh, because uh, there's a lot of interest in providing digital uh, solutions in relation to contact uh, tracing, uh, patient uh, tracing, or, you know, how, how you, you know, to identify risk groups uh, through uh, using of apps and using of other technologies, and also in generally using a lot more of the data uh, uh, on uh, on our sort of location data in particular, but also other types of data uh, to help uh, the healthcare services. So, in a way, uh, you, it, this is very understandable that you know people are trying to find solutions, and digital solutions has been uh, proposed in, in in so many places in countries. Uh, this has been easier to roll out, for example, where fundamental rights protections are not very, very strong. China has rolled out a lot of these digital solutions. Russia has, um, Singapore has, and and uh, we know that you know uh, France wants to launch an app by the 11th of April. Also, private companies like Google and App uh, are also wanting to uh, launch some apps just in the in, in mid-April. So this has really had given an incredible speed. In, uh, in surveillance technologies, even though uh, some of these look vo uh, voluntary, right? So, uh, you know, there, there are questions about whether they can be mandatory or where they cannot be mandatory. And in this case, uh, sort of our right to, to privacy and uh, right of our uh, privacy understood as our data, our location, our health history, our underlying health conditions, all of this 
is uh, under uh, a very important risk, maybe justifiable, of being shared uh, with uh, public authorities or with private authorities, maybe for a shorter period of life time or maybe for the end of our lives. So it is very difficult to understand uh, you know, what is the range of data that will be used or collected and shared and what will happen to it. Uh, and there is a lot of movements uh, in particular at the level of the European Union, data um, uh, protection uh, uh, agency and others to be able to find some, you know, ex ante uh, solutions saying we have to take into privacy when we're trying to fix these problems because we will not be able to, uh, you know, use surveillance uh, or the surveillance won't be effective uh, if, if these privacy concerns uh, are not taken into account. So this has uh, received uh, quite a lot of attention, uh, I think, especially in Europe. Uh, but the discrimination aspects, in, in some ways, the one that I highlighted earlier, uh, hasn't been uh, hasn't received a lot more attention in that. But of course, one of the risks with this uh, surveillance uh, excitement or you know people trying to find digital solutions uh, to protect the right to health, um, we we still don't know the extent of it. We still don't know the the sort of the range of technical solutions and their different trade-offs. And a big sort of concern is that we don't know um, you know whether these will be temporary solutions uh, because if you haven't declared a state of emergency. Uh, no solution is temporary. Solutions then become quite entrenched in decision-making uh, processes. So as a final uh, final note uh, on, uh, on, on the fundamental rights aspects and my final uh, slide uh, on this one, maybe you've seen this, I don't know if you've seen this in Berlin, uh, this is something that started in Italy and it's going around all over the world. Kids uh, well, also adults, I don't think just kids, are, are drawing a lot of rainbows um, you know, to say that, you know, there's going to be some sort of uh, sunshine after all of this <laughs> very difficult times for all of us. There's a lot of hope, uh, you know, uh, communication, I think, through through this through this rainbow. But in, in relation to fundamental rights, of course, the risks of um, these rights, the competition between rights not being balanced in the right way uh, or the wrong balancing of rights being entrenched in the long term. These are some serious questions that we, we have to think about uh, because this changes our governance structures, this changes our ideas of, of, of legitimate uh, governance at the end. But maybe on two positive things about fundamental rights, I'd like to think that uh, this crisis would really seriously push policy uh, agendas uh, to, to frame uh, the, the fundamental right to internet access. I think that uh, the, the fundamental right to internet access is going to be something a lot more easily communicatable to a lot of people all around the world, in Europe or elsewhere, uh, because a lot of the things that we do, from education to employment, to political to social and cultural participation, uh, in times of pandemic, cannot simply exist without without this basic access right. So I think, in a way, this uh, this horrible, uh, you know, this tragic uh, sort of difficulties that people are facing might actually create an impetus uh, for us articulating a right to meaningful internet access. And uh, perhaps one of the other areas where we might see changes, but again, this depends on where you live and how fundamental rights are taken seriously in the first place, I have to say those qualifiers, um, 
in relation to social rights, uh, because the, uh, the 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 economic crisis that will come and stay with us, we don't know the length of time, and maybe this could also be a new impetus in a way uh, for for thinking of strengthening of social rights regime in some places. So uh, sometimes crisis also leads to um, may lead to uh, stronger protections um, along some rights. So I think that's where I'll. Uh, I'll end it. Thank you.